Damn, it's been like five months or something, six months almost, since we've done a new segment proper. It's been like since January or so. Yeah, nothing happened. Yeah, <laughs> nothing at all. And uh, you might also notice that we are minus Clarissa for this segment. Clarissa had to work late. We're sorry, but we all know what that means. Our listener rate will drop by 50%. It's so. okay. I'm, really what work late means is get in line for Iron Man, since that's when we're recording this. <laughs> yeah, as we record this, a bunch of my friends who somehow don't have jobs, I guess, that's the only way I can conceive doing this are going to go see the midnight viewing of Iron Man. There's not just the midnight viewing, there's also the 3 a.m. viewing. I want to know who are the champions who are there at 3 a.m. Seriously, that's an IMAX one, isn't it? it? Well, it's IMAX, but also regular ones. Like, over here, there's 15 different showings at midnight at one theater alone. Jeez. I want to know I, who look, are these people. Yeah. I would be happy to do it, but I have to be at work early in the morning. I am I so mad job. that I can't go to midnight showings and midnight premieres of movies anymore, because that's like where all the like super crazy fans of things show up. Yeah, that's the ones where you, if you go to like the Lord of the Rings ones, that's where the people with armor show up. They did that stuff, for two so. weeks straight when Lord of the Rings came out. I just remember like when Rambo came out. That was the midnight shows when the people who still had their old Rambo shirts from the 80s and oh, headbands wow. and stuff showed up. That's pretty cool, actually. And yeah, I do miss going to the midnight showings. They were probably some of the funnest things. Unfortunately, uh, I am a grown-up. Being a grown-up sucks. That's also what happens when you get paid on a regular basis. Yeah, so. it's a trade-off. <laughs> Anime news, yeah. There's been a lot of stuff that's happened, but because it's really no point in discussing stuff that has been, like, three months over, we're not going to really do that. Yeah, yeah, Handley got sentenced, and yeah, there's been a lot of things coming out about that, but the reality is, is that that's been talked to death already. We're going to start with probably the biggest piece of news for me, at least, and the most recent one, and that is the death of a legend. No minor legend either, anime producer Carl Masek. Anyone who watched anime when it was still on VHS probably recognizes that name. I would argue that he is certainly in the top three most important people in American anime. Industry-wise. Uh, Industry-wise, yeah. I mean, certainly, you could argue, you know, Fred Patton might be the most important one, because he started it, but Carl Masek I consider is, him more a fandom figure. That is very true. And in terms of industry figures, it's quite arguable to say Carl Masek is number one. But yes, Carl Masek, along with Jerry Beck, back in 1988, started the company Streamline Pictures. Carl Masek was actually involved in anime before this. He actually was the man responsible for bringing us... Robotech. Robotech was his first one, yeah. and then after Robotech, uh, he worked on things like Captain Harlock and the Queen mm -hmm. of a Thousand Years, and so on and so forth. Yeah, started with heavy metal and such. If you want to know the details behind him, the ANN cast did an excellent, excellent 80-minute long or two-hour long interview with the guy just like three months ago or something. It's fascinating. Carl Masek's a really, really cool guy. He's a really now, cool guy to hear stories about, or hear yeah. tell stories. It's easy to associate Streamline Pictures and Carl Masek as one and the same, just like how Robotech and Carl Masek are pretty much inseparable. But mm -hmm. the reality is there's obviously been a lot of Robotech that didn't involve Carl, and there yeah. was a portion of Streamline Things that was independent of Carl Masek. But colloquially speaking, Carl Masek's legacy is Robotech and Streamline Pictures. Largely. Other people may remember other things that he was very directly involved in, such as uh, Wicked City and Vampire Hunter D and My Neighbor Totoro and such. And he was responsible for dubbing a lot of these. Wicked City, Vampire Hunter D, My Neighbor Totoro, these things yes. just all go together. <laughs> the thing with Carl Masek is that in his very early years, he was one of the most loved people in anime, and then he very quickly turned into the most hated person ever in anime. Yeah, at the time... The most hated people in all of anime fandom were basically Carl Masek and Trish Ledoux. And yeah. no one got more crap. And I'm not even going to say it's undeserved, mm -hmm. but no one was more vilified than Carl Masek. And I'm not going to say that I didn't have a dislike of Carl Masek for a very long time. Right. I did. But the objection that I always had to Masek 
was that it was effectively his way or the highway. The only way you could ever see Macross for years and years was the Robotech version. The only way you could see Akira was the English dub version or Castle of Cagliostro and so on and so forth. It wasn't until maybe the advent of DVD, with the exception of Akira, there was one subtitled release that I got, that you were able to actually see these things in Japanese uncut. Now, um, they released Robotech bits and pieces of it uncut. They released and, them and subtitled. Japanese. The yeah. subtitling was very bad. I never saw those video cassettes, but I remember seeing them, and it was two episodes per tape, and they were like 30 35 bucks or something. Yeah, they, they were not a deal by any means, even for VHS standards. And so the thing about Carl was his approach of localizing anime and making it for the mainstream wasn't wrong. But at the same time, there was just no other option for the purest person. If you wanted the uncut, subtitled Vampire Hunter D, you'd never see it. It no. didn't exist. Fist of the North Star was notoriously cut up. Windaria is probably one of, one of the, the most worst. edited yeah. things of all time. And it was not until several decades later that we were able to see these things originally. And so for a long time, I had an axe to grind with Carl Masek. I, I absolutely admit that I did too. I absolutely hated the guy because I wanted my subtitled anime. But in retrospect, you kind of see how important he was and why he did that sort of stuff. Even though I can understand it and almost respect it, it's more just an issue of the lack of the option. Once I had the option, once I could get my uncut version of Akira in Japanese, once I could get the Dirty Pair Project Eden in Japanese with English subtitles, then I could look at the dubs that he made objectively or, you know, with less built-in bias towards them and realize, you know what? These are actually pretty well acted. My objection to them is really the scripts that were written for them. Nostalgia is a pretty powerful thing. And now I'm at the point where if I watch Akira, I kind of want that old English dub with Cam Clark as Kaneda and, and so on and so forth to the point where I went well out of my way to get a hold of that. If I watch Fist of the North Star, I want to see that stupid dub with, you know, <laughs> Wally Burr's row. And it's gone all the way around to being good, but only because I have the real one. I still maintain that the Project Eden dub is the way to dub something if you're going to dub it. Unfortunately, that Project Eden dub, as best as I can tell, has not been, like, digitally transferred by anyone. I'm no. trying to find someone who's got a tape who can yeah. capture it and sync it up with the DVD video from ADV. Then right. I'd have, like, a good release. Someone did that for Akira. I think I actually did, in my review of Project Eden, I did comparisons between it. I, I don't remember if I did. I know that I did yeah, it Yeah, you did. Uh, it's been a long time, but I think that if you look at it, the script for the ADV dub is more accurate. It is a technically a better script and a better dub, but it has none of the character that that other dub has. Yeah, Akira and is the king of that. It's a more accurate as far as translation, as far as script, as far as making sense. It's just the actors they've got don't match up with the Inner Sound crew. And Inner Sound was the now defunct studio based out of yeah. Los Angeles where a lot of these actors who kind of became known as like the Streamline crew and the Robotech crew, they were all uh, Inner Sound people. A lot of them still Ooh. work today. Yeah, Richard Epcar and Wendy Lee and such. And Tony Oliver. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that we didn't really realize it at the time, but these were actually relatively accomplished actors. They were kind of doing this to pay the bills. I do enjoy those dubs. I have problems with his methods, but he was the type of guy who said, basically it was along the lines of, okay, if you want to sell 10,000 copies, do it your way. If you want to sell 55,000 or 100,000 copies, do it my way. He proved that. And when his stuff was coming out there, people were watching a lot of anime. I knew a lot of people that watched Wicked City and Vampire Hunter D and Akira. These were things that non-anime fans would watch. I'm not going to lie. If it weren't for Robotech, I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast, even though I wasn't the first anime I ever saw or anything like that. It was just on the sci-fi channel eventually, and I stumbled upon it. But I became very enamored by Robotech and followed it heavily. But it's obsolete. I have no need to go back to it now that I have Macross and Mospita right. and even Southern Cross. So Carl Masek, he's important. I just don't think that in the long run, some of these things are a net positive. A lot of the things, obviously, industry-wise, exposure-wise, numbers-wise, can't be argued with. But as far as methods and approach, I think that is um, largely obsolete. And the continued existence of especially Robotech is now 
more a hindrance than a boon. With Robotech, that's more of a nostalgia thing now that it keeps living on. My issue is, is that right now with anime, nobody is watching anime. Right. That's a big problem. And anime has not really got the same sort of push, and there aren't really people like Carl out there anymore. The weird thing with Carl was that he came from kind of old Hollywood. I think that it was a net positive because I think Carl laid the groundwork for places like ADV and Animago and such. Yeah, Animago was obviously sort of created to kind of fill the void that Streamline Pictures was leaving, Mm -hmm. in a sense. Robert Woodhead, when he created that company, was like, okay, we're going to actually release the best movies you'll ever read. Animago actually might not be the best example, because they might have been started around the same time, if not before Streamline. It's probably better to leave it up to, like, CPM and ADV and such. And Animago's a bad example, because Animago has not grown very much since it was established. On to, I guess, other bits of news. There is not a lot of news to talk about, even though it's been like five months. I guess Section 23 doesn't really want to stay in business too long, because they have licensed Golgo 13, the TV series. They really license all of it? I know they said they were releasing the first 13 episodes, but I am imagining that if nobody buys that, they're not going to follow through and release the remainder of it. Well, I'm sure that they've got the options for all of it. The option makes more sense. I think mm-hmm. it su- surprises me more that they're actually dubbing the show. Yes. That's another very strange thing. They're dubbing the show? Well, like- it's not that strange a thing. I mean, we just talked about Carl Masek. One of the things that he released was the professional Golgo 13. And for its time, that was kind of a, a big deal. A title that, you know... <laughs> It's obviously long forgotten about now that it's been 20-some years, but that movie is an evergreen sort of title that can sell and sell and continue to do well. Is it long really selling today? Fact. Well, it's out of print. The question of, you know, is it selling today is, is sort of moot. If it was still in print, I think it could still sell. I mean, Urban Vision, do they even exist anymore? Probably not. Or if they probably do, they're office somewhere. Yeah, it's so. probably just not releasing anything. So I can sort of understand like that idea. I just think the TV show is not a show for anime fans at all. It's a show that's for an audience Old of people. Man. Yeah, an audience of people who doesn't watch anime in the United States. And so I'm glad it's being released. Like I said in the decade interview. I hope it does well for them. I guess some things are doing well for them because they released that Fist of the North Star, Rao Gaiden, Legend of the Dark Kings, and that did well enough that they're now going back and redubbing it and releasing it on Blu-ray. So somebody bought that. That's true, but as you know, as well as I do, dubbing a show is probably the most expensive thing that you can do bringing anime over here. I'm kind of wondering, GoGo13, if it does well, I mean, it's a 50-episode show. I don't know if their intention is to ever attempt to get this onto cable TV somewhere or something. It seems like such a strange thing to want to dub, or if they're just going to go and try to push it for, like, the streaming market. The streaming market is apparently that's where the real push to have things dubbed is, according to yeah. the latest ANN cast. Well, she was saying that the big thing is, like, when you have stuff on, like, Xbox Live and such, you have to have it dubbed there. And I guess the biggest seller on there is Ikitosen. And so if Ikitosin is selling on, like, Xbox Live-esque places, then Golgo 13 might be up that alley? I'm just thinking of the power of Koichi Ohara being unstoppable might be the real reason for Ikitosen's success. It's easy to put a pin-up picture of Ikitosen and sell someone on that. It's kind of a little more difficult to get a good money shot of Golgo 13 With all the money shots that are in that show. Well, yeah. So I I don't know exactly. I hope it works out for them. But it seems like a pretty big gamble. I mean, they are also doing like some very niche projects like Clannad in English. And honestly speaking, I'm very skeptical that anyone who would purchase Clannad is remotely interested in watching it in English. But what do I know? What was that one Moe title that ADV released like right towards the end of their life? Air? Air, yeah. Didn't that... I heard that that did okay. Yeah, I heard it did all right, and then they yeah. released Canon, and... Canon th- was before that, I thought. I don't Maybe keep track of these things. They're all Maybe interchangeable. Yeah, they all are. All I heard about any of those titles ever was that Air did okay. What do we know? Let's see, do we have any more news that you wanted to talk about? Well, I haven't really been following much news-related things, because it's all kind of like... Bang what? Zoom talking about how anime will die unless you buy our dubs? Bang Zoom is 
probably the lamest anime dub company there is now that Ocean Group saw where the money was and went to do like primarily video games and regular American animation. I've written about this extensively. Pretty much any time the subject of Bang Zoom comes up, I am not a fan of their efforts, even though they've got some very talented people. They've got Tony Oliver and Wendy Lee and Michael McConaughey, and these are all streamlined inner sound veterans. And yet, a lot of times, the stuff that they do for Bang Zoom sounds pretty crappy. And I'm pretty sure it's entirely the result of their ADR directors or the people in charge handing down some sort of edict that says you have to be as close to the Japanese performances as possible. I heard that there was one company out there that tries to get even, like, the same intonations that the Japanese voices have. I'm pretty sure that is Bang Zoom. Because the thing about Bang Zoom dubs is if you were to ask someone who is, you know, vaguely knowledgeable or, you know, even like has a passing familiarity with anime, what are the characteristics of a bad anime dub? Bang Zoom embodies all of them. Because they're mimicking Japanese performances or being told to do that anyway, it sounds exceedingly fake in English, all these performances, such that if you were to put on a Bang Zoom dub and then not look at the TV screen, you could tell that anime was on because it sounds very false. When you think of the great dubs, and you can pick pretty much almost any one of them that come to mind, that's not the approach they took when making the dub. They took the approach of this is like radio, or this is supposed to sound like just people talking. Cowboy Bebop is like this classic example now from over a decade ago at this point. That doesn't sound like anime acting in Cowboy Bebop. a list of... of examples that people can maybe think of when we they say, you know, bang, zoom, dubbing. I'm trying to get some of the more popular things here. They did uh, Chobits. Rurouni um, Kenshin was big. Kenshin. I don't like that dub, but it's got some good actors in it. Like, again, Michael McConaughey, Kirk Thornton, who is the dub voice of Blackjack. I know these guys can do phenomenal work. I've heard them do it in other dubs, just yeah. not the ones that bang, zoom does. Please Teacher, Please Twins, Planetess, Paradise Kiss, X, they dubbed that, Witch Hunter Robin. I'm trying to get, like, the biggest thing. They did Haruhi Suzumiya, but I don't think anyone bought that. So, things that people might have seen. Or Maybe the seen secret is that they should just never let Wendy Lee direct. Scryed, they did that. Because Wendy Lee's big approach is, like, you've got to be larger than life. You're an animated cartoon and stuff when you're directing it's not that she's a bad actor, she just, I don't think her approach is really all that great. I mean, as Faye Valentine, her big famous role, that wasn't the approach that she took when acting as Faye, to be like overacting larger than life's kind of character. The notion that Bang Zoom is saying because their business is down, that means anime is going to die, I really think that Bang Zoom embodies the faster, cheaper, at all costs mantra of dubbing. Whenever I go to a convention and there's someone who's from Bang Zoom there, like a guest like that, all they keep saying is the industry keeps going towards you got to do it faster. You got to cut costs. And I guess Bang Zoom is prepared to do that. And it sounds that way in the product that they create. I'm trying to think of like who is now left in the world of like anime dubbing. I guess um, there's New York AV Post, which is like Mike's Interna class and uh, Media Blasters uses them a lot. Right. I, I don't know if I'm too huge on their stuff like they did like the new dub of giant robo which is like all right another case where it's much more accurate to the script but the acting isn't really there i mean i don't like the giant robo dub either way but that's like the classic example right there they do okay stuff obviously the um funimation crew is still out there doing all that stuff in texas Uh, does funimation doesn't like outsource it It, it's all in-house right I don't even know. I don't know now. New Generation Pictures is still around. They just did Super Street Fighter 4. Of course, that's like real money video game stuff. I guess 4Kids, obviously, is probably the most constant anime dubbers out there. Because they still got to dub Pokemon, they still got to dub Yu-Gi-Oh! and all these things that right. are under our that radar. Want. But yeah, they got their own crew of people for that. Yeah, because I remember like back in the day, ADV had like three of its own studios. It was all, I guess, freelance work then, and they and they just dubbed it that way. And I guess they're doing it the same way now, just on a much smaller scale. So I guess if you count them as well, 
But I don't know. He came out with us basically saying, yeah, if, if things go the way that they are, anime is going to be gone. Anime is not going to be around anymore. Now, I will admit that the point he had was that you've got to buy anime. It's not like this is some sort of crazy thing to say. I think that just everything that company does strikes me as always slightly shady. I mean, these are the people who make anime TV, which is the shadiest <laughs> fucking outfit there is as far as like, hey, uh, yeah, this is actually a Bang Zoom paid ad. Yeah. But we're not going to say that. Probably the most pandering, horrible program for anime fans there is, which is why Mike Dent is mad that he wasn't cast for it. <laughs> To this day, he's like, it should be me as that black man who really likes tokusatsu. <laughs> they, they cast a clone. Everything, that, not everything, most of the stuff they review is Bang Zoom stuff, and pretty much all of it gets very high reviews. Yeah, that's about as shady as it gets. But I guess not to belabor the point anymore, unless you have anything more to add to the news, Daryl? No, I, I'm not really much of a news person uh, nah. in general. No, there hasn't been a whole lot as of recent, so... We're going to transition this very awkwardly to something else, because a little while ago, actually uh, from April 2nd to the 4th of this year, we, all three of us, went to Anime Boston. And so we have got a convention report to do. So that is what we're going to do right now. Anime Boston was held, as I said, 2nd to the 4th in Boston, Massachusetts, of all places, at the Heinz Convention Center, which, from what I can tell, is like smack dab in the middle of the city, almost. I'm not as familiar with Boston as I would like to be. It's a pretty nice place. They had 17,236 people, which, from what I can find, would put them in probably the top five largest anime conventions in America. And if you're among the top five largest anime conventions in America, that puts you in the top five largest anime conventions in the world, because they don't really have too many other big anime conventions outside of North America. It's like Actually they have giant ones in France. I can believe that. Yeah. Just because they've had the real stuff for decades yeah. and decades whereas we've only had it for that one decade and now yeah. we're kind of back to not having it. They've had what Rose of Versailles and City Hunter and Saint Seiya and I guess Dragon Ball Z and, yeah, and Fist of the, the North Star and all these things that we kind of never got on TV as it was coming no. out. They got them as they were new. And yeah. plus, they also have a lot of the manga as it was coming out. But yeah, Anime Boston is one of the biggest conventions in America, anyway. Yes, uh, I was actually looking at the list of largest conventions from last year, and Anime Boston was 7th that year, and they had 15,438 people, and this year they have 17,236 people. I don't know how much the other conventions increased in attendance, but Anime Boston is certainly in that top ten list. The largest one, of course, is Anime Expo or Otakon, depending on upon who reported it, how they're counting, and who is more pissed off with whom. This year, I would be very, very surprised if Anime Expo does better than Otakon, given all the crazy stuff that we've been hearing about the Anime Expo staff hijinks and internal strife and what have you. Anime Boston, we're not going to, you know, go into, like, lots of super detail about this and, you know, talk about every moment of the convention itself. I thought this would be more of a, you know, what did you think of the convention? The goods, the bads, what they can improve on, what they did a very good job of. This was actually my first trip to Boston, ever. I'm very impressed. I love the city a lot, and I got to stay with Mike Toole and his wife, Prairie. We all kind of stayed at Mike's place, which uh, is not really made to have this many people. But yeah, I was there um, last year. Anime Boston was in the same spot uh, as it was last year. It's a great place to have a convention because it's a mall with a convention center built right into it. Right. So, so if you want some, some relatively cheap mall food, it's right there, a 10-minute walk. It's away. actually relatively cheap by Boston standards. Every time I go, yeah. it's like... Nine, ten dollars for food court food. Good lord, that's a lot of money. Yeah. You know, around here, it's, you know, about half that for food right. court things. One of the things I'd like to bring up is that the guests they had this year, in my opinion, do not reflect a convention that is one of the top five largest anime conventions in America. The guests were, I would say, 90% American voice actors. And then there was the one Japanese guest who was Nobuo Uematsu. If anybody was there to listen to this guy's anime music, you are lying. Nobuo Uematsu is most well known for doing Final Fantasy music. We have Final Fantasy Advent Children music. 
Yeah, shut up, Daryl. My point is that if you're one of the largest anime conventions in America, I really think you should attempt to get an actual guest from Japan that actually worked to a greater degree in anime than that. The interesting thing about Anime Boston was the week immediately prior, in the exact same venue, was Penny Arcade Expo East, yes. PAX East, and that drew a whole lot of people as well, and they actually share some of the same guests. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people went to both, and I think that's how they were able to book some of the guests that they had. Like, they were already there for PAX. The video game orchestra, I assume. Well, yeah, they're also local to Boston, because right. you can't really fly out 40 people or however big that orchestra is. A lot of people who I talked to who went to both seem to be of the opinion that they liked PAX more, just because it was more on topic. If that makes sense, like the video game stuff, it was like all video game stuff. Right. But anime cons are becoming their own unique beast. I'm going to bring Clarissa into this right now. Uh, Are their own unique beast in the sense that they are kind of all-encompassing East Asian greater co-prosperity sphere of things to do. So the thing is, is with PAX being pretty much... um, not just more sort of on topic, but also with much more industry sort of support. The video game industry is, they've got more money than the anime industry. And so they're much more willing to just throw out free things and set up like more elaborate uh, booths and the like. Anime conventions, to give you an idea of the lack of general industry support, how many anime conventions can you think of within the last two years where you actually got a bag? Um, Not that many. Anime there was Boston one. Was- Anime yeah, Boston, anime Boston got, yeah, we got bags at Anime Boston. I was like, whoa, wow, we're at the big deal, the big leagues yeah. now, because we got a bag, a plastic bag to hold our stuff in. <laughs> normally, yeah, normally yeah. you don't get that in anime convention unless, like, the only time I could remember getting bags on a regular basis was when Bandai Entertainment would donate mm-hmm. bags to conventions. Yeah, the giant bags yeah. that were a godsend. Yeah, now they can't afford to do that, and now conventions don't give out bags. Right. Anime conventions, the other thing, a big tchotchke, lanyards for your badge. Yep, now they just give you the little clips that you clip it onto your shirt or something. Yeah, usually I bring my own lanyard, because anime convention can't afford to get lanyards donated to them, let alone spring the cost for thousands and thousands of lanyards. Video game industry doesn't have to worry about this. You know, everywhere you go, there's someone giving you pens or things to hold stuff with and what have you. And uh, that's just a difference in uh, money, I guess. I didn't go to PAX East, and I kind of would have liked to, but I'm sure that the major, like, industry booths were probably more elaborate than the industry booths that the anime companies had, which were largely just tables with DVDs on them. Right. Square Enix was there, and I don't actually think they showed up. I think they just had, like, a space. And I think that the only companies that did show up were Media Blasters, Section 23, mm-hmm. and... Funimation, prob- I think, was there? Funimation was there. They had a, they had a booth set up. They had a little up. bit more. They had a more elaborate booth set up, yeah. They're kind of the last people that can afford to do that. Wasn't Sega there? Sega was there. Sega was Why? there with Bayonetta, yeah. Which uh, I'm sure that they were just hanging around for the week since the... <laughs> yeah, they maybe they were just town. in town for yeah. PAX and then, yeah. Might as well just, you know, leave the same booth up and push the same game. As for the convention itself, what are your guys' thoughts on it? Well, we had a slightly um, different experience than you since both Clarissa and I were there as panelists and you were there as press. We weren't there as press. And so we had right. panels to do. We were featured panelists, which meant that I guess we did uh, a few panels... And we shared them among the two of us. Personally, I actually thought, to be brutally honest, our panels were okay, but not fantastic. And the the reason for this... I think that this comes from the fact that when you have to do so many panels, like there was another person at this convention that had to do about eight panels. Just say it was Alex. It was Alex Levitt, and (laughs) he did like eight panels, and... He brings that on himself, because he... And there wasn't really any great panels that he did, to be brutally honest. A lot of these panels felt like they were thrown together, and that's what's going to happen when you have eight panels you have to prepare for. Well, in my case, it wasn't a case of having too many panels to prepare for, and maybe Clarissa will feel the same way about this. It was a combination of two things. Most of the panels we did for Anime Boston were panels that we'd never done before. They were created especially for that convention to fit in with their theme, which was mad science. Usually anime conventions have a theme, 
it's not a bad idea necessarily on paper to say, okay, the theme is this, and so we should do something to reflect the theme. Right. But it's kind of hard to take a theme that you pick that's generally for your program guide and extend it mm -hmm. to programming that maybe the people want to see or well, attend. The thing that gets me is that most of the time when they do these themes, it's not really like things that are really strongly related to anime necessarily. Right. It's sometimes, mainly just a motif for your program book. Yeah. Like sometimes it'll be really vague. Like wasn't there one year that J-Con was like fire and ice or something? Duality. Duality was my favorite theme that they had. How the hell are you supposed to get that theme <laughs> anywhere in a convention? Rama one half, the panel. The <laughs> dual peril trouble adventure, the panel. Right. But like, you know, I, I think they're that generally the idea just... Of the idea still, of like, themes is a nice is maybe nice on paper, but I think just abandon the idea seriously. The other convention here in Florida that does themes is MetroCon, and I don't even acknowledge that as an anime convention anymore. But you know, their themes are always things like pirates versus ninja, ninja versus samurai, whatever, whatever else for you know to set up their chess match. It really doesn't affect the cons programming. It affects basically how your badge designs look, how the front cover of your program looks. That kind of stuff. And so. And the, and the one big event at the con. Right. The, what's it, the chess match or whatever. Yeah. And, so. and even that is sort of, uh, an anomaly. And so yeah. we did some panels and we did our damnness to relate them to anime. Cause we said, okay, mad science, we can, uh, take this and do a panel about mad scientists in anime. We can do a panel about things being destroyed as a result of mad science and, and so on and so forth. So we had a few ideas. They were just never panels that we had done before. And when the first time it's always a little weird because you're just sort of figuring out what works. Yeah, and the other thing, because it was the first time we'd ever done the panels before, it was a little harder to integrate my set with Clarissa's set in a more seamless sort of way. Because, you know, we didn't really ever at any point be able to meet up beforehand other than just talk it over and say, oh, yeah, I'll bring this and you bring that. But as right. far as like what we're talking about, as far as what leads into what transition wise, that's a little harder to work out um, well, until you do things. So I thought that, you know, in general, our panels were OK, but they weren't like mm -hmm. spectacular. Maybe I shouldn't be admitting to that, considering I'm a featured <laughs> panelist, but it's also what I felt was true. Maybe I'm just my own worst critic. Even some of the panels that we'd done before, you know, maybe we weren't used to doing them together. And so, right. like, maybe uh, we have... Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the, the cataloging panel might have been better if just Clarissa were there. Because, I mean, she'd done that two or three times before really well. And I'm not really sure that you added anything to the panel. I think that it was really kind of a decent panel to begin with. And just sitting there because you had to sit there didn't really do all that much, really. We just weren't used to doing it together. So, like, handoffs were awkward. And But if we have to do it together again for some reason, I think we'll be more familiar with where we can sort of transition between the two of us and yeah, so that well, was I mean, basically the job is of course to make sure that what you say, Clarissa, what Daryl says it the same thing and just takes five times longer to say it. I mean, I really do think it's just it's a lot of new panels. When I had to do three multimedia panels, I did that for AFO like three years ago or so, and I'll never do that again. And I mean, I was doing those all by myself then. I, I don't know I, if if anyone had gone had gone to and maybe one of the Alex Levitt panels, they would have seen that. A lot of his panels were just throw a bunch of things into uh, PowerPoint. Yeah, there were PowerPoint presentations that he looked like he spent about 30 minutes on each, mm -hmm. and he probably did. But if you can speak extemporaneously well enough, you can cover for it. It's kind of weird because twice now, between Otakon last year and Anime Boston this year, I always seem to somehow end up missing all of his panels, even though he does so many, and I always intend to go to at least some of them. But there's always either I'm scheduled for something else opposite, or that's when people decide to go get food, or whatever. I'm trying to think of if I actually caught any of his this time. I went to one with Daryl and Mike, largely because we didn't have anything else to do. There were people jumping up correcting him. <laughs> It was a, oh. uh, it was the hentai manga, or the I think one of just like a hentai panel. Oh yeah, I wanted to go to that and I missed it and I don't remember why. It's like, okay, let's start else. with the history of hentai. Hentai began with bondage fairies. It's like yeah. okay, stop right there. 
Weren't you at the room party or something? And that brings us to today, you know? Oh, yeah, I think that was when I I ended up hanging out with Aaron and them because we couldn't get into anime hell. And by the time we realized that Gerald had saved seats, uh, we had already left the vicinity of the room that it was in. I was on anime hell again. I guess I can tell the story of anime hell. Yeah, um, I was I was I was texting Aaron constantly like, "Hey, where are you guys? Where are you guys? I'm saving these seats. People are trying to jump into these seats." Yeah, so. uh, anime hell. And we responded to you and we told you where we were. I got a response 4 hours after I sent my first text. But anyway, uh, how did how did anime hell go? Anime hell, due to my own ineptitude and negligence, I wasn't aware I was on anime hell until about 2 hours prior to start. Fortunately, I always have hell stuff on hand at any given time and so i was like i didn't want to go too overboard with like reusing my previous anime boston stuff fortunately i had my anime week in atlanta stuff that hadn't been shown in boston before that i could use so it was me uh mike tool and mike horn and much like how with uh, clarissa and i on our panels we didn't really know how to work things together i had no idea Literally, no idea what Mike was going to show, Tool, and no idea what Mike Horner was going to show at all. <laughs> and so it was a it was a very weird panel because anime hell. Everybody has got different sort of philosophies on what is funny, on what is funny, on how to transition mm. things, on what sort of material if they want to be anime heavy or if they want to be like fifties um, special ed films heavy or things like that. And so it was kind of weird to see that because you all have very different philosophies towards it. I don't think I necessarily have that different a philosophy than Mike Tool, but from Mike Horn, he only brought 3D movies, and he's got a lot of this stuff. And a lot of the stuff he's got is funny, but what he brought was just very long. It's a good gimmick to have, though, 3D glasses and give them out, and, you know, have the cheap 3D gimmicks that you have, and then at the same time, you can make fun of, like, the current 3D trend. But the right. clips that he brought were not that exciting and very, very long. And I would say most people who would leave Anime Hell did so uh, during his things. It's interesting, but he he's like, oh, wow, this is a crazy clip because, look, it's Vincent Price getting into a fist fight on a conveyor belt full of fire. And I'm like, but no one knows who Vincent Price is anymore. That was an awesome clip, but I like Vincent Price a lot. Yeah, I so. like Vincent Price, so I'm like down with it. But yeah, yeah. I can understand why people weren't into it. The other thing for Anime Hell, there was some weird tech issues going on before the start of it. And I've looked online, and it seems that people are attributing these tech issues to us not knowing what the hell. Let me go on the record and say we were ready the second we got there to start Anime Hell. I saw um, you guys setting up. And it, we were set was, up and ready. I mean, all yeah. I needed was a laptop connection, and that was it. But because it was in a fairly large room, whatever was going on backstage is very elaborate, and I have no knowledge of what made it take uh, roughly 30 to 45 minutes to set up basically mm. three video sources that switch between each other. It's not like it was even, uh, oh, laptops aren't good, you should just burn DVDs sort of thing, because... One of those video sources was just a DVD player. I guess it's an anime hell tradition that there's some weird tech thing. I just think that it was uh, odd. There were some issues overall because I had some technical problems when I was doing my blackjack panel. But there was something weird going on where the audio was messed up and I had a bunch of video clips. Like I could hear the background uh, music in the clips, background audio. But all of the voices, when people would talk in the clips, would disappear. Now, I think I and know what happened here. They would adjust the levels on the mixer, and it would fix it for a few seconds, and then it would revert back to being messed up. Yeah, that so... was at least confined to that one room. We ourselves aren't permitted to handle the, the mixer in, in that room. They've got a staffer guy on there for it, but... The staffer guy doesn't know how to fix the problem. <laughs> what I think happened, because I happen to have a mixer board here, is that the mid-level things, like for certain audio frequency ranges, one of those dials inadvertently got turned all the way down. And that is why you could see from like a certain range of audio you would hear, and a certain range of audio was just completely gone and muted. Um, well, right, but the thing I don't understand is that they had people adjusting it, and they adjusted it and it fixed it, but it only fixed it for a couple of seconds, and it's not like they 
turned the things back down. They turned everything up and it did fix it. And then somehow without them readjusting the knobs or anything, it messed up it again. It messed and up that's again. What I didn't understand. It was definitely not anybody's laptop or source because it happened to every yeah. single panel in that room. We had one panel in that room and I, they were aware of it. The tech guys, right. I guess they're just gonna have to replace that part out next year but yeah it was the manga mania panel didn't have any like stuff they were showing on laptops did they no there was no, no video no. or anything like that that was a panel that there is a recording of this full audio aaron posted it on the ninja consultant podcast people were saying that this panel was mind-blowing the panel he didn't introduce anybody it, this was this was this was ed chavez's ed panel chavez. from vertical we're all internet famous People should know who we are. I mean, I don't even no, know all the people on there. And I didn't so he know didn't everyone introduce on anybody. There. He didn't say what the panel was about. He didn't say really what the purpose of the panel was. He just kind of started talking about manga. The panel description and what Ed was telling everyone who was going to be on it prior to start suggested that it was going to be a debate. However... Not everybody got to answer the same question. And the questions didn't seem to, like, flow together. So it was a very... Very strange. It was panel. a very Ed Chavez panel. Like if you've ever yeah. listened to his podcast, his podcast is solely for other people who are as bad a dude on the block as Ed Chavez, which is to say, nobody. No one's as bad a dude <laughs> as Ed Chavez. You're the baddest yeah. dude on the block, Ed Chavez. No one else can touch you. You know, you're the, the King Solomon of you know this whole place. The notion. I'm sorry, that- Ed, it, it wasn't a good panel. You really, Ed is a very interesting guy, but what he needs is like he needs someone to sit with him and, like, run the panel and then ask him a question. And then he'll say something absolutely fascinating and really interesting and people will be engaged and then get back to the person running the panel. I think that would be the perfect panel then. Yeah, ask Ed Chavez, guru of all things, the man who has the answers. (laughs) That's a great panel. But as far as, like, Ed grilling you on, like, the finer points, let me put it this way. That conversation, that panel, would have gone exactly the same way if there were no microphones and no audience. Yeah. Just literally having a conversation with Ed, which is cool if you know Ed. <laughs> yes. I actually have a fantastic video, almost of this entire panel, 99% of which is Mike Tool's face. A close-up 1080p zoom of Mike Tool's face <laughs> and or Mike Tool's feet sticking out from under feet. the table. It l- and he largely looks perplexed the entire time. Like, it says something. The video that reveals Gerald's deep and abiding love for Mike Tool. There's no revealing to it. I love Mike Tool. He's, he's, (laughs) I, I I would, if he weren't married, I would propose to him right now. uh, (laughs) Wouldn't we all? It's Massachusetts. You can do that there. Yeah, you can. Although then I might have to go to soccer games and that might be a problem. I would deal with it if I could hold his hand. So, (laughs) the, um, yeah, it's largely him looking perplexed. I actually have another video of him at the Mad Scientist panel, which is quite funny. I'm sure it's hilarious. However, I've never seen it myself, and I'm probably never, ever going to see it, because you don't ever share videos with anybody. So all this talk about these great videos you've got are probably of no use to anybody listening. But, Ed, you're such an interesting guy, but presentation skills need some work. Yeah. Fascinating guy, but... He's working on it. And I mean, the, the panel it's was. It's not like kind I didn't tell him that so. to his face the second the yeah. panel ended. So it's not like anything we've just said <laughs> is like some sort of behind Ed Chavez's back. No, I yeah. told him straight up and he knows. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. No, he said that was the design of the panel. That was, that was what it was. Right. It wasn't a mistake. He actually <laughs> wanted that. I'm just saying that this is a bad design to have. Yes. Does anybody else have any more points they want to bring up about Anime Boston? Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, I could say uh, a lot more about... Let's not say a lot more about Anime it, Boston, but okay. <laughs> I get the feeling from the way this is going to come out edited that it's going to sound like we did nothing but slag on this convention. And that is excessively harsh. I want to make it clear right now, I think Anime Boston is probably in the top three anime conventions I attend, period. I, I wish more conventions would follow Anime Boston's approach because mm-hmm. they had a ton of panels and a ton of them were very good uh, in fact yeah. most of the ones it was a case where i wanted to go to things but i was scheduled opposite those things just like what clarissa said i mean in anime boston there's always something for me to do at awa there's always something for me to do at otakon yeah. there's always something for me to go to if i go to most conventions there's nothing for me to do there's maybe one thing for me to do all weekend <laughs> and that's yeah. really my general con experience so i wish more conventions would sort of follow Anime Boston's lead, 
which is to say uh, they had a featured panelists program, which as far as I can tell is unique to Anime Boston. No other convention does this. And we were featured panelists, so I can tell you exactly what it entailed. They get people who they kind of know are decent at doing panels, which technically is us uh, and some various other people whom I, I don't know all their names offhand. But guys like Alex Levitt, guys like Rim and Scott the Geek Knights, guys like Mike Toole, Neil Nadelman, and so on and mm-hmm. so forth, and say, okay, if you do X many panels for us, we'll pay you part of your airfare or part of your hotel or something like right. that. That's what permitted me to even be able to go to Anime Boston in the first place. I wish more cons would do that because a lot of cons see panels as kind of just the filler almost. Yeah, they see it as like a filler thing. They see it as something that doesn't really draw people to a convention. The way they justify spending money in most conventions cases is they say, okay, if we spend this money for so-and-so person, will that draw people who wouldn't otherwise come to the convention, yes or no? And if the answer is yes, then they say, okay, book that person. In the case of that line of thinking, though, you're kind of, you know, only spending money for things like voice actors, for things like musical guests, People with some sort of name or cachet to them. I don't have a name or a cachet. Contrary to what crazy cosplayers on the internet say, we don't have like a fame as far as like, oh, we're doing panels there. People who would otherwise not come to a convention are going to come to that convention now. Hell no. Right. I mean, podcasting in general is still a niche thing. I mean, we get far... We get far less traffic, and we're one of the larger podcasts, but we get far less traffic than most of like the major anime-related blogs or you know news sites and things like that. So Right. That said, I think if you have a strong panelist block, you get more people who are more likely to come back. I mean, granted, mm-hmm. panels are only attended by a fraction of the general attendance of an anime convention. Like at Anime Boston, there were 17,000 people at this convention. The most attended panels was probably still only a couple hundred, which that's very good for panel attendance, but relative to the total attendance of the convention is fairly small. However, those few hundred people are the people who dominate the internet discussions, the people who dominate like all the press and all like that level of like the people who are going to go on a blog and talk about your convention and publicize it throughout the year. For example, at the various manga panels, I could pretty much see like the entire manga blogging core of the internet is all here, and they're all going to talk about this thing that you're doing. Running good panels draws a more dedicated level of fan that in turn is the type that is willing to publicize your convention on a more year-round basis, that's got some sort of merit to it, but it's not as direct a value as if I book Vic Mignogna, these people will show up. I'm actually kind of jealous of the Northeast conventions because you've got a lot of these cities up in the Northeast that it seems to be not too difficult to get between by bus or train, even if you can't drive from one to the other. The Northeast, like New York area... And California are like the big hubs for a lot of the uh, dedicated anime fandom. So a lot of the big anime related bloggers and things like that are from around there. So they get to these cons really easily. So when you have those cons up there, they can easily get a lot of these people who can do really awesome panels and I guess will attend is... all those panels. Whereas here in Florida, yeah, there aren't very many what the major... fuck do we have here? There aren't nothing. very many major yeah. metropolitan areas within yeah. short traveling distance of one another. The way, if you're in right. New York City, you can get to Philadelphia, which is another major metropolitan area, within a few hours. Well, we have Spooky Electric, so we... Win. Yeah, we do have now. William Bradford. <laughs> so we're the complete winners there. But... Right, but I if, mean, I if guess... other conventions would like to implement... This featured panelist program, of course, you know, it would require some money on your part, but, you know, there are more successful conventions than Anime Boston that do not have a featured panelist program that I think would benefit from implementing it. If anyone does that, let us know and we will do panels for you if you are willing to fly us out there and perhaps uh, help us out with lodgings. Of course, seeing as how we did ourselves just got done saying how our own panels weren't very good... The likelihood of us coming back to Anime Boston as featured panelists are possibly in question. If you disagree and you thought our panels were actually okay, maybe you might want to go on like the Anime Boston message boards and say you, you like them. It's probably too late now 
But as I checked the board, there wasn't really anybody talking about the stuff we did. If I related directly to what happened at the convention, it was a mediocre convention for me. I was disappointed that a convention that's one of the biggest top five conventions didn't even have a press room that I could find. They didn't have anything seemingly set up for that. I was looking around and no one could answer any questions about if I could get any interviews with anybody. This is not a little convention. This is a large convention. They should have those sorts of things set up. I would like to see them try to push their themes less in subsequent years. The themes I don't think work. I think they're a nice idea, but I think it just largely leads to mediocre to bad panels in the end. I would think they need to put a cap on how many panels a single person can do so that there's at least the possibility that there are going to be fewer panels done by the same person, but they're going to be of higher quality. Assuming that they have more panels there, then they can deal with that they put a cap on it and that people are not given eight panels or seven panels or whatever, however many panels to do, that they're given enough panels that they can make featured panel status if that's what they're going for, but few enough that they can concentrate on them and make them good panels. I don't know if I'd say I'm necessarily in favor of either of those things you just said. I mean, even though I said my panels were okay, that wasn't the direct result of them being related to the theme. It was the direct result of them just being new panels. I've done conventions where I've done even more panels than what I did here, and the panels were good. I think I just had an off weekend. But a lot of the ones that I went to were actually good. I didn't have as good an experience with the panels. I went to a whole bunch, and Mike Tool's panel about soccer was awesome. He named the panel Anime and the Beautiful Game, which if you know anything about soccer, immediately you know that's a soccer panel. But if you don't know about soccer, then that doesn't mean anything. But I'm so glad that I went, but that was an excellent panel. There were some panels like this. One guy held like a 3D... I forgot the guy's name. It was like 3D movie making. I and remember Bamboo was so pissed off that she was in there because she thought originally the Funimation industry panel was going to be in that room afterwards, but then they realized wisely that needed to be in a bigger room. And so she ended up sitting through this guy's panel. He's like, who is this douchebag doing this panel about 3D machinima? It's like the guy who did like the dead fantasy videos and that sort of stuff. He had some very good information, but then he did things he did things that, that kind of pissed me off. Like, he, he showed this one video that was like, well, I'm working on this now, and so I can't really show him a whole lot to you, but, oh, well, it was leaked on the internet, so I guess that's okay. Leaked on the internet? Dude, you're the guy who you're has the, the guy. file. You're the you only, only guy the that has the file. You he's talking it. like he's fucking Hollywood, you know, this is some super secret deal. Yeah. You're one guy who makes videos. It's like, <laughs> gee, I wonder where the leak came from. They seem to be in this transition point for me between a small regional convention and a large convention, and they're not at the large convention yet, in terms of how they seem to be running the con. And I think I would like to see them start to run a little bit more professionally. I mean, for me, it, it was mediocre for those reasons. So, I think that's the end of it, so uh, I guess on with the rest of the show. Okay, I'll hit cut here. Man, how long can we stall before we actually get to the review part of the show, like the main part of the podcast? I think the reason for all this stalling is that the more I listen to my review, I think it sucks and I just need to redo it. That takes time. Anyway, if you want to hear guest appearances on other podcasts, last time I said I was on the Anime 82 podcast talking about Gundam Unicorn. That actually just got posted about a couple days ago. So if you go to Anime 82, Two.blogspot.com. You can download that there. In addition, I will be on the next episode of the Greatest Movie Ever podcast. I hate to let the cat out of the bag, but if you must know, I was on there with Mr. Paul Chapman talking about the greatest movie ever, In the Name of the King, A Dungeon Siege Tale, directed by Dr. Uwe Boll. You know you won't listen to that. Don't try to deny it. Head on over to gooberzilla.wordpress.com. It's not out yet. It'll be out, like, within a couple days. I feel like we didn't even scratch the surface of what went down in that movie. If you think of that movie as a vast ocean of terror, we maybe just got to the seaweed of it. The seaweed that comes from the sea. Anyway, tune in next time, where we promise I will have an actual review up. I think we'll put Clarissa up first with her review of... Five centimeters per second by Makoto Shinkai. Look forward to it.